mother is bleeding. At least I have a husband, you know. Does anybody here believe it? No. <laughs> Back with episode 78. This is the Janice. Janice. I actually had a cousin named Janice. I, I mean, I guess I still, I, not had. They're still my cousin. I just don't see You just any, don't talk to them. I don't yeah. talk to any of my cousins. Um, ever since the whole thing with my parents. And we just don't, you know, we just don't talk to anybody on that side of the family. So, um. Janice, but we called her Janny. Okay. So, I think of the Muppet that's in the band Doctor Teeth in the Electric or- Orchestra. His Electric Orchestra. Um, Janice is the one that doesn't ever really open her eyes, and <laughs> she always, always like, goes, "Oh yeah, for sure." I love her. <laughs> She's all Midwestern. I I remember way back in the day. Oh God, <laughs> my other VH1 people. Back in the day when VH1 fucking rocked for reality TV, oh, gold. <laughs> But Rock of Love season one, which I have watched four hundred times, <laughs> I will watch that show over and over and over. That season particular, season one is a fucking gem. <laughs> Any hoozle. So there's one girl on there that I remember doing like a side by side. I'm like, she kind of looks like her. <laughs> but yeah, so. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just want to say really quick before we get started. Several people were saying things about how, like, oh, congratulate, congratulating me on my epic win last week. All five across without a, a, you know, no free space. I'm pretty sure all of yours had free spaces involved. Um, so that was epic, a pretty normal win. Epic win for me last week. I had a lot of people congratulating me, and then also mm-hmm. stating that they hoped that you celebrated me. It's been a week, and I do not feel celebrated. Just wanna, just wanna point that out. Well, I also attribute it to like the hockey season and the basketball season are going the the suns aren't going to organize a parade for a team that beats them in the regular season i made you a fucking plaque with my own two hands at the end of the season what is that how is that any different celebrating a win because we're playing a game in the season okay it's part of the journey all right it's all about the journey all right I could use a little celebration, but that's all. That's all. Just, you know, just a little. Maybe, like, buy me a drink. If we got to the end of the season and you won, I would find a way to make sure that you got celebrated as the champion. Okay. But we were in the middle of the season. Okay. So the shows were different. That's sports all. fans will know. That's, that's uh, you know, we're just different. That's fine. Sports, sports like fans will know what you. I'm that's talking fine. about. That's fine. No big deal. No big whoop. I'm fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> now that i'm fine she said she's fine all right so the episode is called duggars in the driver's seat and it premiered march 23rd of 2010 mm-hmm. the episode begins with baby cannon getting ready to head out to go see josie lego harris staying behind because he's not sure if he has allergies or a cold mm-hmm. oh mildred's arrived <laughs> um so he you don't want to risk that when it with preemies yeah so he's staying behind mm-hmm Michelle talks about how any sickness usually begins with the little ones. Little ones. I feel like when we do create squares, sometimes they don't get picked for a while, you know? Yeah. 
So we got to mark that off. And she says it usually starts with them and gets passed around because they share slobber back and forth. <laughs> Yum. Lot, I think it's they all share that a relish little, little, yeah. that they're making. Somebody, you know, dug into the relish. Everybody's sick now. <laughs> Jason had a little bit of a tickle in the throat. Now the whole family is yep. sick after having hot dogs. Yep. Yeah. If they got sick from eating the relish, would it technically be them coming down with the dillness? <laughs> Merp. Oh, poor Jason's down with the dillness this week. <laughs> oh. So while she's talking about this like the show is kind of got background like montage of like snotty ass faces <laughs> which honestly snotty faces is probably one of the things about little kids that grosses me out the most <laughs> like there's just something about like snot running down a face lots of time like directly into their mouth mm-hmm. oh, or when it's just like oh god when it's just like chilling they're on their top lip do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's just chilling there and you're like oh god Oh, or even when it's crusty and dried on. <laughs> Oof. I I give mad props to teachers and childcare like workers. Mad props, you know, for handling that every day. I mean, for many, many, many reasons. That's just one. Some of us are just not cut out for it. Yeah. For a variety of reasons, <laughs> but um, snot is a big one. Yeah. And I just I think everybody has their things, and snot is one for me. Is it is mm-hmm. it a big deal for you? Because it's a it's a it's one. It's for definitely me. noticeable. Um, I think it's more noticeable post me being sick and being like, okay, I need to like make sure that I'm not, you know, touching my face a lot, or I'm really careful about like washing my hand. I wash my hands a lot at work anyway. But you know, but I feel like I'm those are things children. I notice a lot. But like children, I think I think most adults aren't walking around with snot running down their nose. I'm not. I'm concerned. just saying those are things that I notice now. Like I notice that more than I used to. When I'm like out in public, you know what I mean? Ugh. Then they also show Hanny digging in her nose again while little Jackson, he sits there awkwardly and waits for her to finish up. He, he's like, look, lady, I, I tried helping you out in the past. Because remember that one where he was like yeah. trying to stop her? He's mm-hmm. like, I tried to help you previously, but I think he's just kind of finally realizing he's up against the impossible and he's just letting the girl finish it off. Mm-hmm. And he's just keeping his mouth shut this time. Yep. So. I am going to say that I put this as an our girl Johanna Square. Okay. Mostly because technically she's digging up the duggers. I have, I was going to say, at least we know she's a digger. <laughs> like, at the very least, we know she's a digger now. Twice. This girl. Oh, Hanny. And once again, Lego uses his line that he thinks is oh so funny. As Michelle is walking out the door, he says, "Don't worry about a thing here. Everything will will be here when you get back." Yep. He's got jokes. We know. We it sure is funny. He's got jokes. Mhm. Josie is now fifty four days old and two pounds five ounces. She's a little behind on the growth curve, so they're starting to supplement the breast milk. Michelle tells the doctor that she's been meaning to tell him that her milk is basically skim milk. Okay. That she's never had much fat in her breast milk, and her babies are usually very skinny until they have um, they start having rice cereal. Mm-hmm. So she may be the Dairy Queen, but she can never actually make a blizzard. Nah. Not enough fat. No, not at all. Not enough. You mean she's not getting it from all the cheese eddy and <laughs> I'm assuming very high fat content 
preservative. Well, remember, she eats canned tomatoes for lunch, so no. <laughs> back at the Cornish house, uh, Lego tells Joseph and Josiah that they're allowing them to hitch a ride back to Legoland with one of the crew members who's going mm-hmm. there so that they can go be with John David. So I guess that means at some point Joseph came to Little Rock that we didn't see because originally he had been back there yeah. from the beginning with mm-hmm. JD. I I put that there was a their real children square on this part because as they're trying to talk to Lego about like what's going to happen, the little kids in the back are kind of just doing that little kid thing where they're all just kind of making noise and moving on things and whichever one was in the was in the little playpen was just like banging her head against the side of the like the soft playpen you know what i mean like Uh behind him it was kind of it was kind of bedlam while he was trying to like talk to the camera (laughs) so i'll allow it i did not have that down but i will allow it it's also a slim slim pickens episode nobody's getting bingo in this so (laughs) unless we perfectly match i think we got like three squares so that's not even enough no it's not enough (laughs) Um, and I actually got to say, I'm actually pretty impressed with Josiah's packing skills. Did you notice? Mm-hmm. He folds and rolls his socks up into his pants, and then he ties it all up in a hoodie, and then he ties the hoodie up into a big coat mm-hmm. because he doesn't have a suitcase. Yep. So it ends up being a big ball, and all it, he needs is a stick. Like a bun- like a bindle. It was not too many years ago that I finally found that that's what that's called. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know bindle. Like I would think probably bundle or something, you know. But like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's bindle when it's on. I a learned stick. it from The Simpsons. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. See, you can learn great things mm-hmm. from all these pop cultural references. <laughs> so Joseph says that he packs lighter than Josiah and says, "I've got music and a Bible, the necessities of life." As he holds up his toiletry bag that has a Bible inside and his mm-hmm. violin. Yep. Or do you think when it's a boy that they're like, no, that's a fiddle. <laughs> you know like that's the male and female yeah. version <laughs> yeah. and then it's super cute because hanny runs over to joseph and says this is for john joseph those are for john and those are for john and she hands him a stack of letters mm-hmm. some little drawings yep. all folded up that she's drawn for him and some candy and it's hilarious because it's probably like seven christmas peanut m&ms at least that's what it looks like <laughs> yeah and like seven just like seven pieces of candy like rolling around in this giant twizzlers box <laughs> but it's so sweet yep and this is actually where i put our girl that we got earlier but it fucking kills me because it doesn't matter that it's just a few pieces of probably like fucking germy fucking <laughs> we see how she digs in her nose snot germy Ugh, like covered candy but it's the fact that she wanted her big brother to have that snotty germy seven pieces of candy <laughs> yep i mean candy is like kid currency mm-hmm. so she was sacrificing to make sure her big brother had a gift of letters and germy candy it's like so fucking cute i can't stand it it's like when kids oh, give you everything that they can give you like that mm-hmm. means a lot yep so fucking cute oh love it In a talking head of our favorite duo, Hanny says, We're going to go back to Springdale, Arkansas. And they ask when. And then Dancing King chimes in and says, Uh, in five years, I think. In six years. In seven years. In eight years. Change tapes. (laughs) And everyone laughs. Yep. 
He knows what's going on. He's like, yes, he does. He's he knows production now. Mm-hmm. Change tapes. <laughs> now back at the pest nest, Josh is on the phone talking with someone about a car on his lot, and a voiceover from him says, "Really, the focus of our life is on family, on God first, and then family second, and so those two principles really dictate what we do in anything." Do they though? <laughs> do they? Um, I think not. Anna says she likes going to the car lot because Josh is her boss and she gets to spend time with him. But like he's her boss at home too. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I put. Is that you, what's the difference? Change of scenery, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe she really likes those um, license plates hammered to the fence. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, Josh isn't saying how it, this time of year is his busiest time of the year. And they show him wheeling and dealing. I mean, he's got customers on the lot, which we're not <laughs> very really, important customers. We're not we're not accustomed to seeing so many people, no. you know, meandering the lot. So yeah. it, it is a busy time. True. And then they ask a couple that are at the lot looking around. Very important. Named. Wait for it. Timothy and Whitney. <laughs> What are the odds? Not exactly a carbon copy. No, no, not so much. I don't have nearly enough dip in my lip. (laughs) And he does not have enough melanin. (laughs) So they say, What do you think of Josh as like a salesperson? Does he seem like a trustworthy guy? And Timothy says, Yeah, he seems very trustworthy. And Whitney says, Most definitely, yes. Riveting. (laughs) Yes. And uh, this Tim and Whitney would give a different review. That's true. So yeah, I think they don't opinions... speak for all Timothys and Whitneys. That's just, correct. Just to be clear, they haven't been to the meetings in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Back at the Tater Top Mansion, Josiah is frying up some turkey bacon. Some turkey bacon, yeah. Because he says it's all they have. They don't have eggs or bread, so he just decides to cook the whole package. Yep, whole and package of turkey bacon. Just... He made breakfast. To be fair, I will say personal opinion only i feel like store-bought turkey bacon i usually don't like because it's either super dry because it's it's turkey meat (laughs) that they take and they process and then they put it into a mold so it looks like light and dark stripes like pork bacon so it's heavily processed when it cooks it shatters because it's processed there used to be a company here in Arizona that we would actually be able to get um, like cured turkey. So it was actual turkey, but it was like pressed and cured in the style of bacon. Delicious. Who was it? It chewed like a really good. It was called Sonoran Meat Company. Mm. I think it was Sonoran Meat Company. Something Sonoran um, was the name of it. But we used to get something them, Sonoran. Look them something up. Something Sonoran. Yep. <laughs> they they don't exist anymore. It's a it was a brand that got that ended up shutting down. But yeah, really good. Mm. I don't know if they if you if you know anything like that that exists out there in the in the public sphere, let me know. Yeah, because the other ones are disappointing. Awful. Which if you like it, hey, hey, it's fine. Cool. Have it. Have mm-hmm. at it. That's why I said personal opinion at the beginning. So, um okay, so they've had their, you know, nutritious breakfast of a whole turkey pack bacon. of uh, turkey bacon. And then they head over to one of their buildings that they rent out on their property like one of the commercial type buildings. And they find a dog inside and then later a cat. <laughs> one of the cameramen steps in shit because this dog has been in there a while or, you know, <laughs> I guess. And so 
Josiah goes around picking it up. So good on you, Josiah. Yep. We see that he's not afraid to get, yep. you know, down and dirty, I guess. Mm-hmm. I will say the cameraman did say, look what I just stepped in. Name of one of my favorite punk albums of all time. And I had a cartoon of a matador who was holding poop in his hand. like, And it said, look what I just stepped in. So we need the vandals. A, we need that with uh, just that guy on the cover holding. Uh, exactly. Adam. Yeah. Yep. The vandals. Really good album. So, um, yeah, just kind of like these, this, this episode is fucking stupid. There's just so many <laughs> random, like, so if it sounds like I'm just like, oh, and then the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, that's how it's it is. because that's really how it was. So Pest is going to give Joseph dri- driving lessons, but you know, the cameras are on him. So he has this opportunity to like look really wise and brotherly. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like he knows what the fuck's going on mm-hmm. and so wise. Um, plus, obviously, they've sent the crew there. So it's like they need content. <laughs> Like, the crew is here, so they're just like, do something. Yep. So, Pest says, I wanted to give Joseph a driving lesson, but I knew it was going to be very important first to take him down to the insurance office to be able to teach him the importance of why people even have insurance and why it exists in the first place. So, smart, you know? Now, do you feel... Actually, finish. I'll ask when you're done. So, um, you know, like, what would... What would Joseph do without Josh taking him to sit down with an insurance agent? Yep. Not to buy insurance. Just to learn what it is. <laughs> like at that age, like you don't know yeah. what insurance is, but maybe not if it's not in a wisdom booklet. I don't know. That's true. That didn't come with this pre-law degree. There was no pre-insurance degree. No. It's like you no. have the business degree, your pre-law, pre-med, but oof, I did not. I don't have the <laughs> insurance certifications. <laughs> Do you feel like that insurance agent was got that call that was like, hey, we're going to do this? And he was like, what the hell am I supposed to tell this kid? You I think I mean? yes, but I think he was also like, oh, put my name on TV for local people. Of course, who, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's like, fine, I'll fucking do it. But it's like, what is he actually supposed to do? <laughs> it's like, they're not there to buy insurance. Yeah. So this guy has apparently known the family for five years, and he has this to say. The whole system with the Duggar family is the buddy system. You know, the older one teaches the younger ones, and Josh has been an excellent example. He follows his father. An excellent example, he Mm. says. Yeesh. Yep. That didn't age well. Nope. But there's more. He says, the best thing about the Duggar family is the heart. Non-judgmental people. They love people. Who is he talking to? He could have missed that second line. That second line is the problematic one, is them being non-judgmental. The rest of it's fine. You can say they have heart. You can say they care about people. But I think we can both admit that they're They're not exactly (laughs) described as (laughs) non-judgmental. Yeah. Um, So besides that, uh, what that guy says, it's really a fucking nothing scene. Like Joseph looks checked out, as he kind of often does, to be honest, and Pest nods his head with, you know, looking a whole lot of smug, you know? Like lots oh, of Oh, yeah, smugness. he's getting all sorts of compliments, yeah. Yeah, and that about sums it up for that scene. It's fucking stupid. There was a line when they were going... Actually, go ahead. Start the next part. Um, Pest has taken Joe to a parking lot to set up a course with traffic cones. Mm-hmm. Smart and idea. They're in a yellow bug every 2,000 curls dream. <laughs> they're even rocking the, the pink daisies on the dash, you know, yep. that you always had your little flower mm-hmm. holder, your little vase. <laughs> the vase. 
Pess thinks he's really funny, saying, You kind of feel for the other drivers out there. No. <laughs> you kind of fear for your life. You trust that airbag systems and seatbelts are going to do what they say they do. Good oh, one, buddy. He's impressed with himself with, in that moment. <laughs> like He's like, man, I'm really hitting it with the fucking funnies. Yep. This guy, he's got jokes. Just like his father. Oh, man. One thing that stuck out to me was in a talking head, Anna says, One day, he's going to teach Mackenzie to how to drive, so mm. why not start early? Yeah. <laughs> and I point that out because he won't. That aged poorly. He'll be very much still in prison because she's like 14 now. So, like, mm -hmm. he's going to be like way, way long time in prison yep. still, as he should be. And it just stuck out to me as one of those things where, of course, at that time, Anna would think, assume that someday her husband would teach their daughter. And then you right. just compare that to her reality now. And you're just like, oof, you know. And and I'm sure we'll come across a fuck ton more of this type situation, <laughs> like, over <laughs> the course of the show. But this is, like, the first that stuck out to me so far. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we're in for a fucking ton of it to the point where probably at some point it will probably barely ping to us anymore we'll be oh, like yeah. oh there it goes but like just kind of like move on yeah we'll get used to it but this first one really sticks out where you're like yeah. oh no this one's gnarly i told whitney perhaps next season if we reevaluate our bingo squares that i we might consider a that aged poorly um square because there's been a lot of that this year and it's exactly like you said i think we're going to start seeing it more and more i think i should actually make a note where we write that down for <laughs> next year because I think that that would be a really good square. Yeah. Season five, people. So back at the car lot, Josh and JD head out to pick up a vehicle, which actually ends up being an ambulance. I know. I saw interesting. <laughs> um, I actually saw people because, you know, everybody's converting vans these days and like mm. whatever. But I've seen a couple that have been converted ambulances and it yeah. makes sense because they're so much whiter. Mm -hmm. So it's yep. like th they actually make really good um, yeah. converted vehicles. So they're going to go pick up this this ambulance. Ambulance. So Josiah and Joe stay back and they're helping with chores and things around the lot. Taking they're, Christmas lights down. They're taking down the Christmas lights. They're scraping prices off of windshields. And um, while they're taking off the Christmas lights, Josiah, I think that's what he was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that makes sense. Uh, he's standing on the hood of a very snowy van. Yep. So not safe from the start. Yep. And then he falls off. And luckily, he doesn't eat shit or anything. He lands on his feet like a fucking cat. But he's like, whoa, man, that scared me. Like, it's almost like surfing off. Like, he just yeah. goes. Well, if you looked at it, he landed on his feet and then he leaned forward because he almost face planted against another car. Because I, I specifically wrote that and I watched it a couple times. Like, he's, he's standing on the hood. He slides down the hood and he lands on his feet. But he, his momentum's carried him forward, so he almost, like, eats dash. He almost eats, uh, like, hood. Yeah, he got lucky. Yeah, it was close. And I also think of just, like, when you land like that, sometimes it's almost easier. Like, to get scraped up is almost sometimes easier in a way. Well, not easier, but, like, do you know what I mean when you land in that kind of way and it almost sounds like the vibration feel? like Up through like, your body, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that probably felt yep. not great. Yep. That was kind of not not neat, neat. <laughs> oh hanny inside josh is still gone and some lady's ready to buy a car 
Anna has never done a sale alone before, so she's having to call Josh and ask questions, but luckily he makes it back to make the sale. It's really not interesting. It's not, but the one thing it reminded me of was Roseanne, because in Roseanne there's an episode early on where uh, Dan and a bunch of his friends are betting Roseanne that by the end of a, by a certain time in the evening that they're going to have done these three things to the truck, right? Yeah. So his friends are over there with him and at first it's Roseanne and Jackie kind of like roasting him and then it becomes her sending Jackie out to like distract his buddies so it makes him slower. So it's this whole thing and he says something about the car and Roseanne looks at Dan at one point and goes, my little, f- well, my little female mind can't handle the complexities of a modern combustion engine. <laughs> the way she says it, yeah. a modern combustion engine. Yeah, but that's what this reminds me of because there was she was doing everything, but when they would ask her about it, then she was like, "Oh, I'm just a silly girl." Like that's how that felt. It's like you're doing that to yourself. The part that I didn't like was that he was like, "I," in their talking head, he's like. I have every confidence or something like that. Along the vibes of like, if she ever had to do it, she could do it. And she's like, oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, You're so yeah. sweet. And she like, like nuzzles into him for like a I moment. Know. And I'm like, Anna, stop. Just stop. You're like, doing this to yourself. You could like fucking it. follow a form. <laughs> initial where you need to initial. Make a copy. Yeah. Hand up over some. Like, I, I, I think she's got it over Josh. Right. I think she can handle it. <laughs> And but it was just the way she was just like oh and like nuzzled him. I'm like stop it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Have a little self-respect, it was, it was, woman. It, that's exactly how it felt. It was odd. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. Um. Yeah, and then the episode ends with the boys having a snowball fight, and that's really it. It's a really fucking boring episode. There's a lot of filler, and I <laughs> I really feel boring. bad for them because I think I think having them outside of their normal house means that a lot of the things that they would usually set up for content, which is them going places as a they family and doing, the, they can't do right now. And their schedule, as we see, is so tight. Yeah. That they're, they're just stringing together random mm-hmm. fucking bullshit with no real direction. Yeah. Because if you think, when was the last time we saw them like go and do something like set up and staged? It was probably the submarine, right? And even then, that's such a small little bit because they're still mm-hmm. working that around them going and seeing Josie every day. It's like, yeah. it's not their normal, like, we're spending a whole day driving to this, blah, 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 blah. You know? Yeah. I, I feel know. like they were kind of scrambling for content during oh, they this are. part. They definitely are. And yeah, seeing that they do this all in a fucking month, it's like literally like what, it's an entire day or two for an episode. Mm-hmm. And it's like. Because the last like three have kind of been filler. And I feel like what's really helped us gauge that besides the fact, well, it really is actually just every time they go visit Josie, them keeping updated on how many days old she is, where I'm just like, right. oh, yeah, like, this is, like, a pretty short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. Pretty, huh? pretty boring. That was it. I hope uh, no more kids have the dealness. Today's dig is a little different. We're going to be, you know... Dipping our toe ever so slightly into the true crime space. But the main focus is actually on how this case connects back to IBLP, fundamentalism, and some of the undeniable parallels in the handlings. Or the mishandling, (laughs) actually, in the years leading up regarding one of the perpetrators. So just as an FYI, this episode will be discussing murder as well as sexual abuse and assault. So just so that's clear. Before we get into the main focus of the dig, I do feel the need to give a crash course in the crime itself so that there's some context of what we're dealing with here. Okay. 
Some of you may have heard of this case before. It's pretty well known. It's the murder of the Pettit family, also sometimes referred to as the Cheshire murders. Around 3 a.m. on July 23, 2007, Stephen Hayes, age 44, and Joshua Komisarjewski, age uh, 27, invaded the Pettit home. Little background on, on how they knew each other. They had both lived in the same halfway house rather recently. And describing Stephen as outgoing and funny and Josh as quiet and weird, a fellow resident of the halfway house was quoted saying, I don't know why they clicked, but clicked they did, like a pair of handcuffs. The previous evening, so actually just hours earlier, Josh took notice of Jennifer Pettit and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela, at the grocery store. He followed them throughout the store, out to their car, and back to their home. And that's how they were chosen as a target. So back to where we were. It's 3 a.m. when they break into the Pettit home, and they quickly come up, up upon the father and husband, William. They beat him badly with a baseball bat and tie him to a support beam in the basement. Then um, Jennifer, 11-year-old Michaela, and 17-year-old Haley are each tied up to their beds in their individual rooms. So they start scouring the house for money, and they end up not finding much. And But they're taking their sweet-ass time, like even drinking beer out of the fridge, mm. when they decide that they're going to have to take it a step further because they didn't find much money. So they found like a bank statement or something like that. And they see how much money they have. And I thought one place said like thirty, forty thousand, another place said twenty, thirty, but let's just mm. say thirty thousand dollars, okay? Okay. So a little after nine AM, Stephen drives Jennifer to her bank and extra- instructs her to dr- withdraw fifteen thousand dollars, which is I'm like okay. I'm almost like, oh, they didn't go for like the whole mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just interesting. So he has her go inside while he waits in the car. But of course, Jennifer has an opportunity, so she takes it and she tells the bank teller that her family is being held hostage and then leaves. At 9.21, the bank caller calls 911. Meanwhile, Stephen and Jennifer arrive back at the house. Mm -hmm. Things escalate quickly after this, and Stephen ends up raping Jennifer. And as he is, uh, Josh comes in to inform him that William had escaped from the basement. With his legs and hands still bound and losing a lot of blood, William had managed to hop up the steps out of the basement, like one of those like doorways mm-hmm. out of the basement that to outside that are like ground level. Yeah. So he hops up, is able to make his way outside and hops over to a neighbor's house around wow. 9.50 a.m. Mm-hmm. Damn. Meanwhile, the police are actually outside, but they're far back and mostly unmarked, mm-hmm. having arrived at like 9.36. Damn. So police are present, and as Bill was escaping, he just didn't even know that they were there. Stephen then strangles Jennifer, and they begin dousing the house with gasoline with the intent to set the house on fire mm-hmm. so as not to leave behind any evidence. About two to three hours earlier, around 7 a.m., Stephen had used the Pettit car and containers that they had to go get gas from a gas station. Mm-hmm. They set the house on fire and fled in the Pettit family car at 9.56. By 10.01, they had crashed with the police cruiser and were arrested. So I wasn't kidding when I said that things moved fast. Yeah, no kidding. They had been in the house a long time, like over seven hours, but a lot took place in under an hour. Mm-hmm. So uh, the two girls, Haley and Michaela, uh, they were that were tied to their beds, tragically ended up dying from smoke inhalation. Okay. And this left Bill as a sole survivor. Damn. Both Stephen and Josh offered to plead guilty to get a life sentence, 
and the state declined the offers as they sought to pursue the death penalty, and both were taken to trial. So not getting into lots of details, but just know that each of them blamed the other for it turning to murder, stating it was just supposed to be a robbery and the other was the reason that it escalated. Kind of worth noting, though, that Josh said finding Steve raping Jennifer was what changed things. Meanwhile, he'd been downplaying what he had done to 11-year-old Michaela, claiming to have molested her but not actually raped her, but DNA evidence later proved otherwise. Damn. Um, like, he claims, oh, like, oh, I didn't. I just ejaculated on her. But he had her take a shower, and um, they found, like, bleach on some of her clothing. So they mm-hmm. think he was trying to, like, clean up. Uh, you know so he's really sitting there trying to like act like it didn't happen and he he kept up with it even later writing like in his own diaries she was spared that degree of demoralization before her ultimate death which is just not true based on what they found also he had taken pictures of awful things on his cell phone and the timestamps were for both times that steven was out of the house okay so earlier when i said at 7 a.m he left to go get gas um, and then at 9 a.m., you know, he went to the bank with Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Those were when there's timestamps of these pictures. So it's like in Josh's head, he really thought he could blame Steve for doing more than doing more. Right. To Jennifer when he had actually done the same thing. But because Steve wasn't there, it's like he thought he could get away with it. Right. But then um, Stephen said that he raped Jennifer because Josh had told him to, to square things up basically. So they had both done it. So they're both just blaming each other Yeah. back and forth. And nobody really knows who actually lit the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to set the house on fire. Like it's all unclear, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They both yeah. get found They're Both sides were trying to blame the other side as being more guilty, but it just found like you're both like equally mm-hmm. guilty and, they get the same sentences. Right. So like I said, both are found guilty. And then during their sentencing phases, both are sentenced to death. But in April 2012, Connecticut repealed capital punishment. So their sentences were commuted to life in prison. And before I switch over to the actual focus of the dig, I wanted to say a few things about each of the... Ugh, ugh, here I go. Um, each of the victims, just to kind of like honor them a little as people and not just like a... Like a news story, you know? Mm -hmm. I can do this. (laughs) Okay, so Jennifer was the daughter of a reverend, uh, very involved and very social. In high school, she was the captain of her drill team, a member of the National Thespian Society, and a member of the... This is why I could never have a true crime podcast, my God. Um, Of the homecoming court. Mm -hmm. She went on to... Get a nursing degree and down the line while... Do you want to just read this part? <laughs> it's up to you. Yeah, why don't you read? Okie doke. So we were once again talking about Jennifer, yes? Correct. She went on to get a nursing degree and down the line while working in a pediatric oncology, she met her husband, Bill, who was a doctor. After having their daughters, she worked as a school nurse for Cheshire Academy, a private boarding school. She was very involved in church, loved to read, and play the piano and guitar. Haley was an excellent student earning a journalism prize. She was also the winner of the school's award for exceptional community service. She was admitted early to Dartmouth College, where she planned on attending the coming fall. 
Haley was an athlete participating in both cross country, basketball, and crew. I don't think either of us knew. I had slash to look know. that up. <laughs> yeah, it says I had to look that up. I wrote that. Um, I was like, I had to look that up. <laughs> so what is crew? It's rowing, which I've only ever known it as rowing. Okay. I didn't know that crew is what you call rowing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I learned. <laughs> I had no idea either. Who's the coxswain? Isn't that the guy in the back that's good, like calling? I think so. <laughs> yep. Yep. And tells them like when to go. That sounds about right. <laughs> I want to go back to the old days where they used a big drum instead. <laughs> or was it still called the coxswain at the time? Or is that only fancy things when you're play when you're in crew? <laughs> I don't know. Do you play crew? I don't know. Anyway, off the crew. Uh, Haley was elected to the all-school senior leadership position of the Athletic Association head. Haley also helped raise money for uh, MS research, which Jennifer suffered from. She named it Haley's Hope, and she raised nearly $50,000, all the while keeping it pretty quiet. Very few knew how much she had raised, as she didn't really boast about it. Michaela was well-known for being inclusive and making sure none of her peers were left out. She enjoyed jumping on the trampoline, reading, and playing the flute, recently performing her first solo at church. She loved to watch cooking shows on TV and cook dinner for the family often, as she did that final night. With her older sister due to head off, off to college, she planned to take over raising money for MS Research and change the name to Michaela's Miracle. William attended Dartmouth College, then the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, followed by a fellowship in endocrinology at the Yale University School of Medicine. Eventually, he started his own practice. After the tragic deaths of his family, he attended every trial and was very vocal about his support of the death penalty. He never went back to his endocrinology practice, instead devoting his time to the Pettit Family Foundation, which he founded in 2007. It supports education, especially of women in science, people affected by chronic illnesses, and gives assistance to victims of violence. He later remarried and served in the Connecticut House of Representatives from 2016 to 2022. How'd I do, Mildred? She says okay. She says you did all right. This is why I could not have a true crime podcast because I would fucking cry through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was like, oh, uh, uh, I was like, I knew I had to talk about them because that's the part like I feel is important. Yeah. But I was like, luckily, I was like, oh, good. This is a part that Tim can completely read. And because like some of the other stuff, I write stuff, but because I'm the one that's done the research, like I'm inserting things, other things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is something I was like, Tim can read the ent- I wrote out everything. So I can read, guys. <laughs> All right, so like I said, um, I wanted to give some background context, but really our main focus today is on Josh, Josh uh, Komisarjewski. That is a relatively difficult last name to say. And, and I feel like I always want to say Kamizar, like Kamizarjewski, like, but then I kept listening and I'm like, no, it's Komisarjewski. I don't know. Yeah, so. Make it go back to like kindergarten where it's. What's their name starts with a J, right? He's Josh K. Josh K. See, <laughs> there you go. Just make it Josh K. And Josh what, K. Yeah. We all know who you're talking about. Yep. So I got the majority of today's information from actual trial documents, written statements by family and psychologists used in, used in the case, articles from several Connecticut newspapers as being local. They kept up with the trial with really in-depth details, kind of more so than the more national ones, mm-hmm. as well as various testimonies from the trial, mostly testimony from the sentencing phase because that's when Josh's history and childhood 
was really being discussed the most. And I also got a little from the HBO documentary, The Cheshire Murders, which is good if you want an overall about the case. Mm -hmm. I needed a lot more detail since I'm zeroing in on Josh, which is understandable on the documentaries end because they're they're having to talk about a whole case, Mm -hmm. not just him. Yeah. So I still recommend it for an overall summary and some information on Stephen as well. But um, so I'll be taking you through a timeline of Josh's life. And just know that all the info comes from various testimony and documents. And at times I will reference exactly who gave that information when I feel like it's specifically relevant. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it's piecing together what everyone said in all these things into the same timeline. So let's start with his parents. Taking it back, Jude and Benedict met back in 1972 when both had jobs at a facility for children with disabilities. They were both already deeply religious, and Jude describes being attracted to him because of his commitment to the Lord. Ben proposed marriage, but Jude said she had to pray about it first. And it kind of sounds like Jude had her own version of the Jim Bob coin flip. (laughs) Because she told God if she was supposed to marry him, she should be gifted a white Bible. And what do you know, her mother ended up gifting her a white Bible. Now, that seems very specific. I mean, I wonder how long she'd been, like, hinting at wanting a white Bible beforehand. <laughs> and then her mom gives it to her, and she's like, oh, a white Bible, <laughs> you know? So I think both of us question how serendipitous this entire thing actually was. We feel like there was some pre-work done. I think there was. I think I think the, some like, people knew she was interested in the uh the uh, white bible. Yeah, like before she met this person that she was going to marry, she's been saying like, "Oh, that's one of the things that I feel like I would need or something." You know, so then her parents are like, "Well, it's time to buy that bible." She got <laughs> yeah, right. That's how it feels, yeah. you know. So 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 she gets the the white bible. And the two get hitched, or yoked, I guess they would probably say. They get yoked. They get into eggs. <laughs> they love eggs. Due to some medical complications, the couple didn't think that they could conceive, so they pursued adoption, applying in March 1979. In August 1980, a state social worker called them about a 14-day-old baby boy who had been born on August 10th, who was available for adoption. And Jude said, quote, It was a miracle to us so that we were able to get a child at that age. Joshua was always a miracle to us. And all we know about his birth parents is that his mother was 16 years old and his father was barely out of teens himself, um, his teens himself, and worked as a mechanic. To their surprise, not long after Josh's adoption, Jude became pregnant, which is actually a phenomenon that you hear about a lot with people who are Mm -hmm. unable to conceive before. And then after the adopt that they do. So she became pregnant and they had a daughter. Then in addition to their own children, Ben and Jude started bringing home two teens, Scott and Beverly, from the children's home that they both worked at to stay with them on weekends before they eventually moved in in a more official capacity as fosters in 1984. Okay. Can you just take kids home from work on weekends? (laughs) Yeah, that that sounds sketch. Like, I'm like, (laughs) can you just do that? Like, eh, come home with us this weekend. So Scott, who was 11 years older than Josh, began sexually abusing him when he was about four. I won't go into too much detail, but it 
escalated as these things usually do, starting with posing Josh for drawings that became increasingly more sexual and at times also involving his sister, who was about two years younger. Then it escalated to abusing him with objects and then full-blown various kinds of rape. Mm -hmm. Um, He would laugh at Josh when he was in pain. And in addition to the sexual abuse, he held him down and burned his chest with a cigarette and had thrown him out of a hayloft, which led to Josh having recurring nightmares of falling. Fall, like falling, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The abuse went on until Josh was six. And at first, Josh thought it was something that brothers do. But then he started to realize that it wasn't. And you also hear this a lot with mm-hmm. children that are abused. At first, they're just like, because it's, it ramps up as, starts out as play. And, mm-hmm. you know, it always gradually, that's like when it started with drawings and things like, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, this is just what happens. And they're like, oh, no, this, this isn't. Yeah. And it's really sad because there's a picture of Josh sitting with Scott decorating a birthday cake in front of them and just seeing it i'm like oh like it fucking breaks my heart Mm -hmm. and the only reason the abuse stopped was because the other foster child beverly told ben and jude that scott had been abusing her and they were both removed from the home and this was confusing to josh as well though because he knew them to be his brother and sister Mm mm-hmm And he didn't understand why one day they were just gone and he was never given an explanation. Right. Regarding whether or not they knew Josh had been abused after everything went down with Beverly, Jude said, quote, We asked Josh several times. He said no. We just don't know. We just didn't. She kind of like trails. We had no way of knowing. Trails. Also, (laughs) you know, she just kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. Also worth noting that it was during this part of her testimony that Jude revealed that she too had been sexually abused by a foster child growing up. Hmm. Okay. Fast forward a few years, Josh struggles in school. And I read in one place that he was in special education classes at Norton Elementary School, where Jude also worked as a librarian. In the fifth grade, Josh was flinging desks at his teacher, which I'm not entirely sure if that means fully picking them up or not like i'm mm-hmm. i'm a little unsure but josh had been having problems with the teacher and jude decided to pull him out of school and begin teaching him herself and the curriculum she used was none other than the advanced training institute of uh, gotta bring it back but also this just kind of seems like the final reason to make this change because ben was also upset that they weren't teaching that america is a christian nation and that they were teaching evolution. Ah, okay. So it was just like, well, now, well, now's the time. Right. This also gives me the opportunity to just plug some more general information about their religious activities and their family dynamic as a whole. Mm-hmm. They were evangelical and attended church four days a week. In addition to ATI, Benedict also utilized other IBLP teachings and materials, which were shown in court. So they showed a lot of scans of the text, and it's possible I missed it, but even if they had included it, it had to have been a small amount because I really scrolled through Mm -hmm. it all. I didn't see wisdom booklets being shown. I saw a little bit of seminar materials, but the vast majority of what they showed were from the men's manuals. Okay. And they had their names written in pen across them and everything, so it was like these were their Mm -hmm. materials. 
So we know them to definitely be immersed in at least some IBLP teachings. Of course. As far as the home dynamic goes, Jude, as expected, is submissive to Ben. The defense team described Ben as controlling, unaffectionate, and domineering. And while Ben was testifying, he admitted that he was rigid and had had 10 different jobs in 10 years. Which I think this was how they were kind of illustrating how he was very my way or the highway type and doesn't get along well with others that he couldn't just like stay at a job. Right. Okay. Leslie Leibowitz, a psychotherapist specializing in sexual trauma, was hired by the defense team. And in her report, she wrote, there were constant conflicts between him and his father, who is described as unrelentingly harsh, critical, and hyper-religious. She also went on to describe how much of the messaging Josh heard at both home, uh, we know in his school curriculum, <laughs> but um, and in church, and was how premarital, premarital sex was sinful, and homosexuality was a mortal sin, an abomination. Mm-hmm. Quote, so from his perspective, he had already sinned in that way. And then here's this kid. He's hearing sermons about people guilty of sexual sin going to hell. So he believed this to be directly talking to him. Mm-hmm. And he had it had a profound effect on him, as one can imagine it would on a child. Yeah. So it's just awful. And it's also worth noting that the defense mentions that he had his first of a series of concussions that changed his personality. Oh, with the first being at age nine from a serious car accident. So that would have been about a year before the desk flinging accident. And then he suffered several more in the years after. And that's one of those things where you hear a lot. You've heard many times about how like, oh, this serial killer and this murder and this person had a head mm-hmm. injury. It's one of those things where you can't say that everybody who's had a head injury is going to end up that way. Like you can't make those type of direct statements. Mm-hmm. But it almost just adds to the just like, it just kind of adds to the pot of possibilities of things that yeah we're attributing. So we are once again moving ahead a few years, and both Josh, who is about to turn twelve, by the way, and his sister are away at a Bible camp for the summer, a type of camp that they had been to many times before. A place where the defense team said, speaking in tongues, group humiliation, and guilt mechanisms were a part of their teaching techniques. Damn. To help the jury understand the context of the camp and really just kind of the general extreme religious like culture that Josh grew up in. Mm-hmm. They had the jury watch a nine-minute excerpt of the documentary Jesus Camp, which, Tim, did you ever see that? Mm-mm. You need to see it. Really? Yes, I've, I've seen it like three times. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Oh, my God, we have to watch it. But, like, it's just, it's what, it, they're just so young and just see what they put on these young kids. It's just mm-hmm. like, yeah. So while they're away at camp, Jude gets a phone call from one of the counselors that their daughter has revealed that Josh had molested her. Once the kids get home, they gather around the table as a family for what Jude called a rough family meeting, where initially Josh denies it. Before Jude says, he eventually said, okay, okay, I did it. In court, his sister testified that the abuse started when she was around seven or eight and went on, quote, quite often until she was about 10. She stated there was no penetration, that he's not a violent person, 
and that she forgave him when she was 18, and that they have a good continued sibling relationship as she visits him in prison often. Remember, though, she's she's testifying to try to keep him from getting the death penalty at this point. Mm-hmm. So just kind of keeping that in mind. Yeah. And by the way, she too was abused by Scott. If you hadn't picked up on that earlier. Yeesh. Um, so Scott had abused every other child in the house. Okay. So that was a little sidestep with the sister back to them finding out Josh had abused their daughter. So what do they do? Well, not much. They moved her room next to their own on the first floor, leaving Josh on the second floor. Very a la Duggar. Putting in place those safeguards. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's how, that's the reason behind why the boy and girl dorms are separated by the, like, long catwalk upstairs. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that it's a bad idea to have more separation or safeguards in place. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the bigger point is that they didn't do much else. Of course, yeah. And the Kamazarjevskis are the same. That's kind Mm. of the extent of what they did. They claim they tried to find a counselor, but that it was hard to find someone with the same life philosophy as them. There it is. And quote, why add that confusion to a child? It was difficult to know who to trust. If they are not Christian, they would have to have respect for you being so. Is what Jude said. So I guess that makes doing nothing like, okay. The better option. Cool. Mm -hmm. You're a Christian. So then suddenly that means you had no options available because you're a Christian. Oh, got it. I I could either expose my children to potential of people that are not from with exactly like me. Or do nothing about the serious thing, which is the better. I mean, I mean, it's definitely the better option. Oh yeah, they could have had worldly ideas. They could have talked to other people. Right. Their daughter also testified that her parents didn't do anything because they were afraid that the family would be broken up. And Jude said the same thing herself in her testimony. She also threw in, you know, just like the little tidbit that her daughter was cutting herself after the abuse. Uh, yet another reason why therapy, you know, would have been necessary. But, yeah. You know, that was just a little thing sprinkled in there. It's like your 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 children are clearly suffering, mm-hmm. but you know you're Christian, so that really complicates and narrows things for you. Yeah. Uh, she also said that she quote couldn't recall if they ever confided in anyone outside the home, which is her way of denim skirting around the fact that. Even if it wasn't an official counselor or something, they didn't even open up about it to people from their church. Right. So, yeah, not saying that that would have made a difference, but just pointing out that they really kept it to themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can sit here and cry Christian all you want, you mm-hmm. know, but you didn't even utilize your own community in any kind of way. Right. So the whole basis of their argument is just bullshit. They just mm-hmm. they just didn't want anyone to know. That's that's what it came down to. Mm-hmm. When Ben was asked if Josh got professional help, he said, quote, We didn't come to that point. We didn't know what to do. I don't remember doing anything. Then you remember it pretty correctly. Yep. We know, Ben. Yep. We know. Yep. Back to Josh. He started spending a lot of time out in the woods. 
it had become his safe place to get away from home and his parents, and he enjoyed the outdoors and would practice tracking animals, trying to remain as silent as possible, which will be a skill he Oof. uses later, unfortunately. It's also at this young age of 12 that Josh says he committed his first crime, which was stealing a car. Oh, that's it? So he gets right to it, doesn't he? Like, homeboy totally skips, like, stealing candy out of the Brock's display, like, in the grocery store. And he just goes straight for the big time. He just, he can't be, he can't be bothered with root beer barrels. He's like, I'm going cars, you know? That sounds like an admission. (laughs) Just want to point that out there. Um, No, actually, can I tell you? every... What what is it? No, every, can I tell you? Every accusation is a secret admission. Can I actually tell you the story to that? Yeah. So I That's was. Why I brought it up. I went to a sleepover for a girl from church, and I was the only one. I didn't know anybody else. Like she had all like friends from school and stuff like that. And part of the party was her mom taking us to the grocery store to pick out whatever we wanted to eat. Very exciting. While we were there, her and all of her little friends were stealing out of the Brock's display. I did not take anything, and I could not sleep for days afterwards. <laughs> It's because I didn't take it, and I was still, like, I was complicit. Like, th- I was there, and I watched them steal, and I didn't do anything about it. I have too much of a conscience. I can't do that shit. <laughs> like, even if I wanted to, it would eat me alive, you know? So, it's like, I knew better. So, it's like, I was personally did not steal from the Brock's candy display, but I was there for it. I admit it. Damn. Aiding and abetting criminals. Yep. And I, I don't even remember what they took. I don't even think they took much. I don't remember it being good. I don't remember having any. You know, like, I just remember being horrified. Any hoozle. So, apparently, lots of people in Cheshire left their doors unlocked. You know, the whole, like, safe community thing. Mm-hmm. You always hear that. It's always in these, like, true crime things where, like, it was really safe and you could just leave your doors unlocked. <laughs> so, people did that there. So he wandered into an unlocked house, took their keys, and helped himself to their car so that he could get home by the time that his parents had expected him. Wow. So that's where it starts. Okay. He starts sneaking out at night more and more, and he's he's getting creepier. He's watching people in their homes and stealing underwear off clotheslines. Mm. So things are escalating as it is, but... Then when Josh is 14, he's hit with a tragedy. His grandfather, John Chamberlain, who is actually Ben's stepdad, okay. became sick. And Leslie Lebowitz wrote in her report, quote, Mr. Chamberlain occupied a unique position that Joshua felt both loved and accepted by him. Specifically, Joshua felt that his grandfather accepted his questions and his curiosities and did not see Joshua's struggles with religion as a sign of something sinful. Damn. Damn, noteworthy. that is a mouthful when it comes to our subject matter. It is. Definitely noteworthy because any conversation or anything other than absolute blind conformity regarding religion was an absolute no-go oh, with his parents in this type of community. Mm-hmm. It's not allowed. So for him, it probably was like a huge relief to have a real and honest conversation with his grandpa. Mm-hmm. And it's because his grandpa wasn't religious. So right. he was just like, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk about it. You know, right. like you're not a bad person because you have questions or, right. you know, like. 
some of the other stuff is questionable. But yeah. you having questions <laughs> yeah. is not I know. bad. As I want to point I, that as out. As soon as I said that, I was like, oh. But like. It's just the questioning the question, nature that is not yes. bad. Correct. All that he, other bullshit is bad. Yes. Just want to point that out. So while his. And also, gra- do you hear that dog? Mujit says it? dogs. Am I right? Can you hear it? A little bit in between words. Mujit says dogs. So while his grandpa was sick, Joshua used to sit at his bedside every day and read to him. Then on one particular day, Ben took him to a soccer game because he was just trying to get him like out and about and get him away for once. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, his grandfather died that day. So Josh is already racked with guilt for not being there. And it was made even worse when family members yelled at him for being at a game instead of being at his grandfather's bedside. And I want to point out that the telling of this story comes from Jude, not even from Josh. Okay. So who the fuck is yelling at a 14-year-old for not being there? Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of assholes are we dealing with? And yeah. what family member... Like, it's interesting that she tells the story. Because it's not even like he said that and somebody can be like, oh, did that really oh, happen? Okay, His mother that... told the story. Yeah. This is um, also from Leslie's... Leibowitz's report. When his grandfather died, Joshua was overwhelmed with grief and anger. Death had always been particularly unmanageable for Josh, partly because he interpreted all loss as a punishment for his sins. And this next part gets me in my feels, okay? She continued, For example, when his dog died, Joshua was inconsolable, not only because his dog was an uncomplicated positive attachment, but also because he was certain that his dog's death was a punishment for the sin of being sexually abused. Oof. And that's something that we've heard time and time again mm-hmm. and have really been talking about lately. Like, everything is a direct consequence for something you've done. Mm-hmm. Some sin. Nothing just is. Nothing just happens. And I can imagine with that type of messaging why a kid who's been abused believes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they're looking at it in a, like, there's not enough experience there to look at social nuance and look at certain, and it's so, once again, we talked about black and white thinking. That's black and white thinking, too. Hey, something bad happens to you, it was your fault. Yeah. There's no circumstance. Yep. So, clearly, Josh was already on a bad path, but after the death of his grandfather, things really ramp up. Mm Mm-hmm. He's feeling intense grief and anger and is in a deep depression. Leslie and another psychologist both say that Josh suffers from a severe mood disorder and turn to taking, to, to turn to like risk taking behaviors as sort of a way to jar himself out of depressive states. Mm-hmm. So like when he was feeling really depressed, he, he did criminal type things because it made him kind of feel again. Feel something, like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he kind of says so much in his interview at one point saying, I felt dead. Nothing else mattered. I went on a destructive spree. And I want to point out that in Jude's testimony, she acknowledges that it seemed like the death of his grandfather had a profound effect on him. But her verbiage was that he wallowed in depression afterward. Now, in some circumstances, I might give the benefit of the doubt of it just being poor word choice in the moment Mm -hmm. um i feel like wallowed has a negative and sort of dismissive tone to it correct 
And I acknowledge that sometimes in the moment, maybe even more so (laughs) in trial when things are heightened and you're on the stand, that you might just make a poor word choice. It, It happens. But in this case, I personally believe this to be actually the way that she feels about it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Like, he was wallowing in depression, not deeply hurting and in need of help. Mm-hmm. Just wallowing. Yeah. So, I thought that to be telling and not just like a... Mm. Yeah. So, Josh begins engaging in even more reckless activity, breaking car windows, trashing a church, and Ben specifically stated... That he began listening to the band Corn. That's about as bad as it gets with these types, right? I mean, oh, yeah. sexual. Not the church. <laughs> not wrecking up the church. But not not the sexual abuse. Meh. It's the the rock music that's the serious <laughs> problem at hand. You know, it's that corn. Oh man. Josh also begins running away almost nightly, and one particular night, they call the police to try to find him, and Jude said, quote, They brought him back, and when he came to the door, I saw there was something significantly different, something seriously wrong. There was tremendous pain in his expression, and kind of a cocky attitude. His eyes were absolutely dead. It was like he was just dead. He wasn't who he was before. Turns out the reason for this significant change was because while he was away, he had been raped by who he called a trusted friend. And several psychologists involved in the case call this a re-traumatization of the earlier sexual abuse, which, yeah, (laughs) Mm -hmm. understandable. Yeah. In his interviews with Leslie, she wrote in her notes as he talked that he said he and the friend had been wrestling when he suddenly raped him Mm. and that josh described this moment as quote too much loss and betrayal that was the straw that broke the camel's back so while his parents didn't know that he had been raped again in this moment they find out about it later Mm -hmm. even so though they both acknowledge him coming back even more different before when he was already struggling right and knowing he had been sexually abused as a young child and abused his sister. Mm. And still, they did nothing. In an interview, Ben even said, I really didn't know what to do, and so I just hoped at some point he'd be better. Sounds like you should have hoped a little harder, that Ben. Gonna, that's, man. It goes back to the, the, the Flanders parents thing where yep. it's the we've done nothing and we're all out of ideas yep like it's that same thing it's not just going to magically make itself better and it's like he he's had a terrible year he's lost mm-hmm. his grandfather is close to and they're just yeah. like oh and then also this on top of it and he's already a criminal he's already abused oh we just hope it gets better uh, yeah all uh, these things and we'll hope it gets better so Jude said she noticed her son grew angry and had satanic symbols in his room, along with the words death, die, and suicide. She even found the makings of a pipe bomb in his room. So it's it's wild. It's there's, a, there. there's a lot going on. Yeah. But per usual, things get blamed on a satanic cult. That's, that's the why they... band Corn. Yeah. That's what they believe is going on with their son. Not severe trauma, not mental health issues. It's a satanic cult. It's Satan, yep. 
And and you know he's listening to corn. So what else could it be? <laughs> Josh then sets fire to a vacant gas station and is arrested. Police recognize he's having a serious mental health crisis. Satan cult. Yeah, that's it. He's having a Satan cult. Mm-hmm. And he's checked into Elmcrest Hospital, a psychiatric facility, on August 1st, 1995, and stayed there until the 15th. And so it's during this stay that he turns 15. So he's still so young. Mm-hmm. I read his discharge report, and he was diagnosed with major depression, opposition, oppositional defiant disorder, and cannabis abuse. Upon admission, he was described as significantly depressed, withdrawn, isolative, and had a low volume and amount of speech and impaired relationships with peers. Josh also complained of severe family conflict, described homicidal ideation towards his father, and also complained of overly rigid expectations by his parents, including homeschooling. We have a scratch post that we have behind the chair that Whitney sits in. When she re- when we're recording, and Mildred's back there scratching at it, so she has to make her mark. She <laughs> says, "You guys didn't have a Mildred minute this this episode, Mom." I think I'm gonna have to go feed her a snacky because she looks like she's not gonna let up here. <laughs> okay, taking us back to where we were, he complained of severe family conflict, described homicidal ideation toward his father, and complained of overly rigid expectations by his parents, including homeschooling and refusal to allow him to associate with peers. Also, inserting a small reminder here that his parents did know about his sexual abuse as a child at this point, both as a victim and a perpetrator to his sister, and nobody told the hospital this information. Jeez. During the course of treatment section of the report, it said, quote, Medication was recommended, and the parents agreed to consider this possibility for treatment in the future, but declined medication for the present. Which, to me, truly feels like his parents were just trying to get them off off their back mm-hmm. by making it seem like maybe they'd consider it in right. the future. But it was never really an option. No. It was never a consideration. And at the end of the report, it stated, quote, The patient was recommended a trial of Prozac. But even though the patient was willing to try it, his parents never gave their consent to the trial of the medication. During the sentencing, Jude testified to this saying, quote, I wouldn't give that to an enemy. I've seen the effects of it. They're doing much better. <laughs> yeah. But after his release, you know, now Ben and Jude, they mean business. Oh, now they're serious. Yes. Jude said, quote, I didn't know what was going to happen, but we were going to save Josh. So what was this big saving plan they had? It was that she took the kids, left Ben behind, and moved to New Hampshire. Not only because she believed Josh to be under the evil influence of a satanic cult that they needed to flee from in the Cheshire area, but also to enroll him into a Christian program for troubled teens called The Fold. Oh, why? The Fold describes themselves as, quote, Christ-centered residential care for, for struggling teens t- slash teenagers in crisis from throughout the USA. Separate boys and girls homes run family style in a rural farm setting. 
The Fold uses a discipleship model, and all counseling is Bible-based. Parents attend special seminars taught by Fold staff. And then they give their goals, which are evangelize, lead each one to faith in Christ for salvation and victory over sin, disciple, encourage a life of growth through personal obedience and service to God, and reconcile, establish and restore godly relationships. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Kind of like Jim Bob and Michelle's answer to Josh. Sort of similar, but Josh had more physical labor. (laughs) Less floor cleaning. (laughs) And ditch digging. That was another thing that Josh did. It was like digging a ditch. Even reports from this place indicate that Josh had severe mood swings. Which backs up the diagnosis later from psychologists of him having a severe mood disorder. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to mention, because we're on this topic, that during the sentencing phase, an anonymous letter was introduced from a woman claiming to be the biological aunt of Josh, I believe, on his father's side. And she clearly had been following the case closely Mm -hmm. and indicated in her letter that the family had a history of Tourette syndrome, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit disorder, and addiction. Okay. Of course, this letter is anonymous and doesn't do much. It doesn't change anything. Mm -hmm. But he already had his own diagnosis and one of the psychologists basically just testified that it just kind of backs it up if it's true. Mm -hmm. So Josh ends up being kicked out of the fold. Damn. After he stole a jet ski and went for a joyride, as well as breaking into local cottages in the area. But while in New Hampshire, you know, to to escape the The (laughs) satanic satanic cult. (laughs) Yes. They started attending the Evangelical Bible Church. But the satanic stuff is still a concern. And the pastor from that church testified that Josh was visibly shaken as he confided confided in him and described, quote, a dark spiritual being with glowing eyes and menacing in his appearance by a TV where he had a pipe bomb that he'd made. Okay. <laughs> the one I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So talking to psychologists later, Josh believes he was actually having a panic attack at the time. And I'm like, or maybe a hallucination. It could be a whole list of things. But the pastor led a prayer where he and others from the church placed their hands on Josh and told the devil to leave. This pastor also testified in court, quote, There are times I would look into Josh's eyes. What concerned me greatly was that what I saw in his eyes was nothing. I saw an emptiness. I wondered how much he cared about people when I saw nothing. A blank in his eyes. And all I can think of is like, they're probably thinking, I see the devil or, you know, or whatever they're thinking. Or he's just saying nothingness. But I'm like, what you're seeing is someone who is suffering. Mm Mm-hmm. And needs help, Broseph. That's what you're seeing. Yeah. You're seeing someone with mental health issues and severe trauma. That's what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. It's also at this church that he begin- meets and begins dating a girl named Frances. Okay. 
And Francis testified in his case, and I found her testimony to be very compelling because it really helped illustrate the strict religious community that they were in and what it was like there. Mm -hmm. She said, quote, he was sad. I was sad. It was harmful to different people in different ways. It's a toxic environment. She also very pointedly said that those who didn't share their beliefs were viewed as potential agents of the devil. Mm. End quote. The secular world is considered toxic, and anyone who participates in the secular world is considered misled and potentially a threat to your faith. Damn. Which we know damn well, but Mm -hmm. she's very, it's very clearly stated. Yeah. She also sobbed in court. They even had to take a recess at one point because she was so emotional as she recounted a boy she grew up with uh, who was gay and after trying to fit in desperately with this community ended up killing himself. Mm. And she also said two other people in the community died of suicide as well. So I feel like her, her testimony was very just like very it should have been Charged. very odd. exactly yeah yeah it's like she can really be like look like it was hard for it was just a tough place to be mm-hmm. and josh actually lived in francis's home at one point as her father was trying to help him out and like take him under his wing um oh, because wow. they both went to the same church but they actually lived like 20 miles apart from each other okay so the parents were like you can live with us we'll help him out But in 1999, while Frances was away at a religious retreat, Josh broke into her room there to try to spend time with her. And after that incident, Josh was asked asked to leave the church and their home. So here are some excerpts from the letter that the Evangelical Bible Church sent both Josh and the police. They sent a copy to the police. Okay. Quote, we wish for him to give the direction of his life over to God. We recognize with sorrow that it hasn't happened while he has been at EBC. It is with deeper sorrow we take the action of restricting him from the property of Evangelical Bible Church. We wish that you could know how we all agonized over this decision. For the church invested a good share of its time and energy in you. But we will be firm to say that if you should trespass on these properties, the police will be notified and charges will be pressed. If and when a certified counselor suggests that you are ready to apologize to the church for your actions, you will be granted an audience with the spiritual leaders of the congregation off the grounds of EBC. Certified counselor means Christian. I mean, yes. Cer- who certified who? Like, who's on your list here from yeah. Evangelical Bible Church? Because Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot of <laughs> evangelical therapists that are going to be on their list, you know. Because I feel like they're probably, like, not in our community. This is probably one of those lists where it's, like, a certified one. Oh, there's nobody on the list because we only certify ourselves and we're saying we're done with you. Right, yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I did want to use this moment to point out that this kind of serves as a reminder that there are different levels of immersion within IBLP. Mm-hmm. We're used to the Duggar Keller bait style, you know, mm-hmm. long, crunchy hair and sk- skirts, strict courtship rules. Every ATI conference. But you can still be deeply involved in aspects of the doctrine and share the same beliefs and not follow all of it to a T. Mm -hmm. Like Jude, for example, she was wearing pants in court. 
And as we've talked about, Josh had girlfriends. Mm. And you may think that he and Francis just got away with it in secret, but she talks of how they had sex and things, like, often. Mm. So to me, that says that they had opportunities, like, normal, and I say that in quotations, like, normal teens to kind of get away to be able to do that. Yeah. Where in, like, Duggarland, like, you couldn't because of how closely you're watched and chap- right. chaperones are always in place because you only do courtship. Well, it was said way back in the beginning where IBLP isn't technically a church itself. Yeah. There's people that, like, went to a certain church and then they added on a bunch of the stuff from IBLP. You know what I mean? Well, it's like, and there's various levels of just, like, people dipping their toe. There's some people who just do ATI. There's some people that just kind of went to the seminars, like... Mm-hmm. Like the Mike Huckabees of the world. Oh, they they say like a- IBLP is great. He just went to a couple seminars, but he wasn't like, yeah, his kids weren't in. Like you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like so, there's all these varying levels. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up. And now I'm just gonna gonna kind of quickly go over some stuff now to give a little insight, but not get too lost into it because I'm already 11 pages in and we have more to go. So Jude said that Josh went through cycles of progress followed by setbacks, which isn't surprising to anyone who knows that he has deeper things going on Mm -hmm. that need to be dealt with that aren't being addressed. Yeah. And at one point, Ben and Jude sent him away to work on tour with the Continentals, an evangelical music ministry that while on tour, Josh did like production type things with. Okay. And all the people there had pretty much good things to say about him and that he was engaged in his work. So I think it's because, like, he had something very hands-on to do. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and he was on tour and he couldn't just, like, easily get away. Like, yeah. you know, I think there's yeah. reasons why mm-hmm. that time may not have been as bad. But his parents just, you know, they think that things are all fine and fucking dandy. Yeah. But as soon as he gets back, he goes right back to how things were. Mm-hmm. At one point, Josh even joins the Army Reserves and is sending letters home saying, quote, Prayer really does work. I'm finding things work out better when you do it God's way. So I'm sure this has Ben and Jude just fucking, you know, it, oh, they're just like plotting. You know, they're yeah. so excited. Ex- mm-hmm. Excited. <laughs> it came out excited. Exactly. They went Southern. <laughs> exactly. Um, and he's also suddenly telling his parents he loves, like, no, actually specifically his father, like, that he loves him. Like, they had, like, pictures of like his letters and they're like and it's like i love you dad like the end of all of like his letters and specifically saying like thanking him for his patience with him so again his parents are probably like oh my god this is it Mm -hmm. but that didn't last long either it feels like he was playing a part yeah he was playing i'm the fixed person and i think when you get sent away it is it's like Mm -hmm. oh i'm on this thing now i'm in the army i'm at boot camp for Mm -hmm. the reserves and it's like it's because he has something to focus on you know and so for a little while things are okay but then eventually the undealt with things creep back in and Mm -hmm. it doesn't last yep so it doesn't last because he went awol and he started doing harder drugs like coke and heroin He's breaking into homes regularly and burglarizing them. And while many burglars hit during the day, he did most of his work at night because for him, it was more about being there when people were home. That's what he got off on. Right. Remember how earlier I said that his skill of tracking animals silently would be utilized later? Mm -hmm. Well, this is it. He enjoyed walking through the homes and just standing and listening to people breathe. 
He would also rearrange things in their homes, like photos, just to fuck with them before he slipped out unnoticed. Mm. So it was all is a game. Like it's mm-hmm. he loved it. He always wore latex gloves, not to leave behind prints. And at points, he even wore night vision goggles. At one point in his diary, he described how every home has its own unique noises. And he memorized those sounds and mimicked them as he moved through the house. He was really ballsy and even robbed a state trooper's house, like knowingly. Mm -hmm. So he was like career criminal here. Yeah. He'd been doing small burglaries since he was much, much younger. But it's it's like around 19 that it sounds like it ramped up to this, like, this level mm-hmm. of crime. And then, at age 21, he gets his 15-year-old girlfriend pregnant. Okay. And while she, yeah. <laughs> and while she's pregnant, he's arrested for burglary. He's convicted in October 2002, and then he ends up volunteering information about several other burglaries he committed, bringing the total to 19 that authorities are now aware of. He committed many, many more, like literally in the hundreds. Yeah. These are just the ones that for whatever reason, these are the ones he decided to confess to. I have no fucking clue why. Right. Hmm. His previous defense attorney from this time recalls how he, Josh just like eerily could remember so many details. He could tell you each house, what he took from them, where it ended up, what dumpster he put it in. Mm -hmm. He had an almost photographic memory and just remembered every crime in great detail. Mm -hmm. So with these confessions, Josh's previous three-year prison sentence, which by the way, his parents had asked the courts to consider a two-year faith-based program instead of prison. Because <laughs> they work so well. Yes. Um, so that three-year, they said no. Um, so that three-year original sentence is now a nine-year prison sentence with six years of parole. Okay. So this should have taken him to around 2011-ish in prison. But Josh is released early on good behavior in late 20- 2006. Upon release, he was sent to a halfway house where he met Stephen Hayes. And he was there for eight months before being released in June 2007 when he then went to live with his parents. And he'd been out for a whole five fucking seconds when also in June 2007, he wins custody of his five-year-old daughter. Oh, my goodness. Who was born shortly shortly after he'd been arrested and sent to prison. So he's mm-hmm. been in prison the, her entire life. Yeah. Um, the mother was suffering from addiction issues. So it's like, oh, let me give this brand new like oh. guy who like. <laughs> so, yeah, he gets custody. And also worth noting that he's 26, 27 years old and dating a 17 year old girl. Who, mind you, he dated her older sister at one point. Mm-hmm. And the dad has very directly stated that he thinks Josh is a pedophile and was with his daughter because of how young she looked, even at 17 and beyond. Jeez. She is very young looking. On July 19th, 2007, Josh's ankle monitor is re- removed, which brings us back to where the dig started. To the night of the murders, a mere four days after the removal of the monitor. Jeez. After having followed Jennifer and Michaela petted at the store into their home, Josh goes home gives his daughter a bath, and reads her a story. 
Jude stated, quote, He talked about her, how sweet and precious she was. I had a sense he felt things were not good, and this was like a goodbye. Around 11.30, Josh is leaving the house, which Jude thought was odd, but he told her he had to meet up with Stephen, whom she'd actually met previously, Mm -hmm. because they were meeting up with someone about a contracting job. And he had been doing, like, odd, Mm -hmm. odd jobs like that. She also stated she was worried because he left the house in a black hoodie, which in the past was how he dressed for burglaries. Mm. And the next morning, when she heard a family died in a fire nearby, she feared her son could have been involved. So that has us right back where the dig began. So you know where it goes from there. But I want to close this out by talking about the parallels that we've seen here. Mm -hmm. We see sexual abuse not being handled properly. We see how any sort of help outside of their community, religious community, yeah, is seen as a threat. And even within the community, they still keep it pretty close to the chest. Mm-hmm. A la Duggar as well. <laughs> yeah. We see religious programs and centers as the answers while completely disregarding therapy and medication. Mm-hmm. And that was really the focus of the defense in all of this at the sentencing trial. Their entire argument was that his parents failed to get him the help he needed because they were religiously opposed to psychology and mental health treatment. And it was interesting because in addition to showing various IBLP texts, they even showed a jury a video of Bill Gothard saying this, quote, What we call mental illness is not mental illness, illness at all. It's only varying degrees of irresponsibility. If we act irresponsibly, soon we will begin to think incoherently. So there's no such thing as mental illness at all. Just being irresponsible. You're just irresponsible. That's it. That's all it is. Yeah. And because... The worst form of gaslighting. Oh, yeah. And complete dismissiveness of serious things. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, oversimplification as always. And because he was directly shown in court and everybody knew that IBLP and ATI, because he was so directly linked to this, mm-hmm. November 6, 2011, uh, Bill Gothard said this, We are counseling thousands and many of them have already been counseled by a psychiatrist and they've gotten worse. He said that psychiatry and psychology don't deal with the spiritual factor, which his programs do. We get down to the root of the cause and find out why they're having a problem. We don't focus on demons, although although they are real. They are there. We focus on the person's will and when they have a will to get free from these things that are destroying their lives. It's so easy to say the devils made me do it. We want to have a person deal with their own responsibility not blaming their parents, not blaming the devil. It feels a lot like if you look to a certain time period of development in like medical study, there was a point where, you know, when they thought the humors were kind of a big thing, bloodletting was a thing because it was like, oh, you have too much of this blood in there. We need to get your body making good blood again. Or, Women were just diagnosed with hysteria. Right. Oh, you must you must have 
you know, not enough yellow things in your diet. We should do cocaine about it. Yeah. Like when that, and then if that doesn't fix everything, it's like, oh, you probably didn't do enough cocaine about it. But if you're not looking at what the actual issue is, or if you're. But he says that they do look at the root of the issue. Did you hear him say that? He said it. If you're either choosing or unable to look and actually diagnose what the initial cause of the thing is, it doesn't matter what style of program you put together. It's not created to fix the actual problem. Yep. We should just do cocaine about it once again. (laughs) And he tried that too. (laughs) He tried that too, you know? But yeah, it's just, but you know, he's like, but we we do get to the root of the problem. Oh, God. And... At one point when the prosecution, oh, I hate this shit. They were pointing out that it was while, like, Ben was on the stand. They're pointing out that, you know, their daughter was also sexually abused and she grew up in the same religious environment and she turned out fine was basically what they were getting. They were just like, they were like, wasn't your daughter this? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, has she gone on to be successful? And he's like, yeah, we're very proud of her. So they're getting out like, she just is fine. And I, I fucking hate that because that is also making it black and white. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, these two people, number one. Okay, so they're trying to make it seem like they went through the exact same experience and just like... Nobody goes through the same experience. Exactly. Ever. Never, ever, ever, ever. But that's... Even if that were the case, that doesn't... People can even go through the same thing and it not... And not be affected in the same way. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, no two experiences are the same, you know? So I fucking hate that they... Did they even did that? But while they're pulling the shit, the prosecution, Ben responded, quote, different people choose different ways to solve their problems. Which again, if I were a person giving benefit of the doubt here, I would be like, poor choice of words? Or is yeah. this how you actually feel? Yeah. And I think it's I think he thinks it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Like Josh simply chose this and his daughter didn't choose this, which mm-hmm. There's truth in the fact that, yes, he chose to commit crimes and she has not committed crimes. Mm -hmm. So, sure, there's that little grain of truth in it, but there's a lot more to it than that. Oh, 100%. And I believe that, like, they are just, again, oversimplifying. Mm -hmm. And then Ben also ended this part of his testimony by saying, quote, We're all accountable for the actions we do, whatever they are. Which, again true we all make decisions and take actions but yeah it's it's the vein in which he's saying this that it's very Mm -hmm. dismissive like you know yep oh yeah it also irked the shit out of me because ben would one day admit that they didn't get josh psychological help and that they believed in handling it through church and prayer and then the very next day when asked Do you feel you let your son down? He said this. It was indicated to us that I could have provided a psychologist. If we'd had some guidance from the state, we could have gone much farther than we did. So it's their fault for not pushing hard enough? That is the biggest crock of bullshit I've ever heard. Yeah. They never wanted that. No. But now it's convenient to blame the state and act like, well, we could have done more if only the state had told them. Mm-hmm. 
I don't buy it for a fucking second. Yeah. Like, no, you did. You sat here and even the day before you're like, well, that's not how we deal with things. And then the next day you're like, well, we could have done more. It's because yeah. he was feeling the fucking heat. He mm-hmm. had a night to think about it before he's back on the stand. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, if they had told us, yep. you're full of shit. Yeah. You never, ever intended to do any of that. No, that was never an option, a viable option in your head. Fucking pisses me off. But then, you know, Ben followed this up by saying he wasn't blaming the state for his son's crime. <laughs> I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying that you're the cause of it. <laughs> yeah. Back on the topic of parallels we saw, um, another is isolation. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes because the Duggars were on TV, it kind of gets forgotten or just not even noticed how isolated they were. Because we see them on TV. We see them with a crew. We see them traveling. But ultimately, they were extremely insular. Like, mm-hmm. like it wasn't... They were completely isolated. Yeah. And with the Commissar Jeffskis, Ben's own brother said, quote, I think it's hard for anybody to be able to deal with that kind of a situation, but probably more so for them because they were individuals who basically had withdrawn from many aspects of public life. Mm-hmm. This whole thing, it, it's so fucking tragic. Like, mm-hmm. start to finish, top to bottom. Obviously, starting with the tragic and unnecessary loss of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela, first mm-hmm. of all. Uh, and William as a victim as well. And then his and all of their family and friends, you know, s- suffering for their loss. So that comes... First and foremost. But Josh's whole fucking life is fucking tragic, too. Mm -hmm. Like, he was failed over and over again. Yeah. And he did awful fucking things. But he was failed repeatedly. Mm -hmm. He lived a life of total and complete trauma. Like, starting with being adopted. Mm -hmm. Which, for many, even ending up in a good family situation, which I would not argue he was in a good family Mm -hmm. situation. But even for those who do, it's still a form of trauma for many people Mm -hmm. who are adopted. So you're starting there. His His literal origin, you know? Yeah. Then he's sexually abused by a brother figure as a very young child. Mm -hmm. He believes he's committed a huge sin, an abomination. Because he's been abused. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's just kind of categorized as going to hell. And right. He's done the worst. Then he clearly suffers from severe mental health issues. And then he goes on to become an abuser himself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's sad. Yeah. They failed him over and over. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the other Josh. One, one pest dugger. Like we've said with him before, there is, I understand there is no guarantee that these things still wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But as the parent, you have to take action and do all the things. Yeah. Like you can't sit and do nothing. You have to take action, like real action. Mm-hmm. And that's what the issue will always be here is because in the minds of people like Ben and Jude and Jim, Bob and Michelle, they did. Mm-hmm. They believe that they did. Yeah take action and that's where it'll just never it'll never be anything else because they don't see it any differently Mm -hmm. and if they ever do it's way too late damn so yeah so that's that 
It's a rough one. Mm-hmm. How's that? I feel like we haven't had a super serious dig in a long time. That one was super serious. Yep. And it's like, I feel like it's too... I think some people like... um, Like he did terrible, terrible, terrible things. But I think that I can know that he did and acknowledge that he did terrible, terrible things and then still have a lot of empathy for how he just like... Nobody helped him. Mm-hmm. The people that should have been there for his well-being on all levels were not nope yeah it's like he was set up for fucking failure you know Mm -hmm. and again i don't know that things could have turned out differently but i don't know how you can hear that story and be like well that's fine (laughs) you know like yeah it's not fine Mm -hmm. it's all so serious and it just this is and they're and his parents are probably so fucking confused and that's what is wild they're confused they're As like, to how it got to this yeah, point. Yeah, they, they just probably, this. I just don't think that they've, they don't understand. Clearly, some of those things that Ben said towards the end, they do not recognize or fully acknowledge their part in this. Mm-hmm. At all. Yep. So, that's a tragic story. Yeah. Yeah. I had actually gone two episodes in a row without crying before this episode. <laughs> So and ended you my hit streak. this one out the gate pretty close. Um, I uh, yeah, right. Um, so I ended the streak, but there was no way not to in this one. Just not a possibility, not yeah. a fucking chance. <laughs> yeah. Any hoozle. ready to dig on some things? Yeah, mine's uh, mine's not very specific. It's kind of an idea. So. Whitney and I have talked about how during quarantine we try to eat um, once a week where we would get takeout from a locally owned restaurant to try to keep money going into these places knowing that, you know, people that own their own businesses kind of struggled during this time. And we, I realized that we're very loyal to the privately owned businesses around us and even if it's a little bit of an inconvenience or it's it's a little bit more expensive i do feel like i try most of the time to push as much of my money towards these um businesses as i can knowing everyone's seen it there's that thing that was going around the internet where it's like buying buying something from a local business is paying for somebody's soccer cleats or you know and those are the things that pull at your heartstrings that that's what they're there for and it but it's true at the end of the day that is the absolute fact that you are helping somebody keep the lights on so when we can find folks that we like their business and then most of the time if we start to build a relationship there it feels like an older smaller community part of american way of life that i feel doesn't really exist anymore just because everything's really big and everything's on the internet and um so that always feels good and with that being said we whitney and i um are supporting somebody that so i my thing that i'm digging on is kind of locally owned businesses i realized a couple years ago that the idea that i'm going to be to have the time or the schedule or the mental bandwidth to do my own landscaping is just not the case. I don't live that life. So um, I started 
f- trying to find landscapers that would come kind of every month and maintain. Been through a couple. Been through a handful. They just and... like drop off off the face of the planet, like yeah. a couple of them. And <laughs> I'm like, is it us? Like, yeah, I don't and think Whitney... it is. So, but yeah, and... we'd reach out, and then like way later, they're like, oh yeah, sorry about that. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't even done in a way like we get that life stuff happens. It wasn't even like I'm sorry we were dealing with the thing. We're back. How is you know are are you still interested in having the service done? Like it was just it was very odd, and we f- we found one that. Um, I was talking to the owner. He started a year, like a year ago, and you can tell because he doesn't have that many like reviews on on uh, Yelp. And but I was like, let's do this. And he was very communicative, and he was he told me a challenge they had, you know, in the like during one of the things that they did for us. But it was just nice, so it felt good because I feel like I'm supporting somebody supporting themselves. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I, when I looked out the window, I'm like, oh, you can tell he's new. His his uh trailer's really small, and he doesn't have a chipper. Yeah. So like yeah. They, they were having to like chop everything up to like haul it, and I felt so bad. And I was like, I was, I was like, we gotta give him an extra twenty five. So like we gave him an extra twenty five at the end, but I was like, help him get that trailer, yeah. <laughs> like that chipper, you know. Yeah. But so. if he's Gil Bates, you know, someone will just give it to him, right? <laughs> Well, he just like show up one day and somebody's exactly. like, "Here you go. Here's a here's a bucket truck and here's a chipper." Yeah, he needs a chipper. <laughs> so, supporting locally owned businesses because you are literally helping them support themselves is what I dig on. I dig it. We love it. So, mine, Mildred. She's still she's snoozing. Mildred's passed out on my lap. So, mine is actually very specific this week. Hitting you all with another um, social media account. So this one is Instagram, welcome to Heidi. Okay. And she's a 63-year-old woman that she she posts videos, like reels of herself, picking out her outfits and getting dressed in the morning. And don't, if that's not your thing, I get it. But it's so much more than that. The video, like, number one, she's got fucking cool-ass style. Like... She's got awesome stuff. But that's really just the vehicle for her to talk and tell stories mm. because she does voiceovers as she gets ready. Mm-hmm. And she's just this badass lady, 63 years old, in little, in these little tiny, short little videos every day, tells a story about her life, which she's had a very colorful life, had cool careers, had suffered from addiction. Um, Never got married, never had children, has has things about that, talks about past relations, just all sorts of things. Like, she's a fascinating person. Her points of view on things, just, like, mm-hmm. she's really cool. And I just dig it because my favorite thing is people's stories. Like, no matter how much, that, that I mean, that's why when you look at my books on the bookcase, it's all biographies and autobiographies. Mm-hmm. As much as, like, I can't get into science fiction and like a lot of fantasy and stuff like that. Because at the end of the day, my interest in life is people's stories. Like that's what I find the most fascinating. And I just love how every day she's just telling this little snippet mm-hmm. of a story of her life. Even down to the fact that her 95-year-old father is dating a 92-year-old. And she's, as a 63-year-old woman, struggling with somebody other than her mother. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're like, yeah. oh, it's not just like these children. Like, she's mm-hmm. just like, I'm 63 years old. And I was like, what are you doing? It's not mom. Like, you know, <laughs> so it's just, 
It's really interesting. She's really cool. Fascinating stories. Cool clothes. Welcome to Heidi. Welcome to Heidi. All right. Shout out. Heidi, if you're listening, we love you. She's not. But she's very cool. Love her. You don't know. Heidi, love (laughs) you. She could be a digger. All right. All right. All right, diggers. Oh, and another thing. I love her voice. The sound of her voice. It's she's got a great voice. So she's got a lot to offer. If you just like to hear nice voices, cool. Cool clothes, cool. She, you know, uh, cool life stories. It's awesome. So, I couple things to add on to that real quick. I think I read a thing uh, last year at some point about kind of who we seek validation from, and as a child, you seek validation from your parents, and then as you reach kind of like adolescence and and pre-teenage and teenage you you're looking for validation in others and then at some point hopefully you start to just look inward for that validation and i think that's why you see this evolution of people where it's very much like when you're in your teenage years you want other people to think that you are cool but you also don't want to make it look like you're trying too hard yeah. And then when you reach that point where you really don't care and you're like, well, my opinion's the most important, so everybody else can just kind of fuck off. And this is my opinion. That's when you become cool because you're no longer looking for that. And when Whitney's showed me this page, like that's the biggest thing is understanding that like this woman doesn't need validation from other people for all these things. She still has very complicated feelings and opinions on things, but at the end of the day, like she's not searching She's not searching out that validation in other people towards herself. Yeah. Now she's really dealing with things and being able to go into it with her own opinion. I'll have to find the exact video for when I share this to stories to save to the episode highlight on Instagram. But there is one where she specifically says, in my 20s, I was this. In my 30s, I was I was at the bottom of a bottle. In my 40s, I was doing this. And then in my 50s, and she's like, my 60s, I'm this. But it was her just talking about how each decade of her life, it was just like how she came into it. And it was by like, she's like, and then I turned 60. And she's like, I didn't give a fuck what anybody. <laughs> yeah. But, and that's what, like, she just like defines like the little decades, mm-hmm. decades of her life. And it was really interesting. Yeah. And I just like that, like, she tells the story even from the perspective of like, when she talks about not having getting married or having kids, it's not even. I think when you, I love that perspective anyway because I think it's interesting and it's different from what is traditional. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like a lot of times when you hear that, it's also specifically being like, "I didn't want to" or "I didn't whatever." Mm-hmm. And she's just like, "It wasn't even that." She's like, "It just didn't happen that way for me. Yeah. And this is just my life." So it's mm-hmm. just, it's just a really cool point of view and like all of her storytelling. Very much yeah. enjoy it. Welcome to Heidi. Well, as usual, if you like what you've heard, feel free to buy us a pickle or a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash diggingupthedug. Enjoy our episode visuals and other Mildred-related content on Instagram at diggingupthedugerspod. And if you'd like to send us anything traditional mail, we do have a P.O. Box 5973 Glendale, Arizona 85312. So it is now officially uh, Valentine's Day tomorrow. So remember, the most heartfelt thing you can send is seven Christmas M&Ms in a really empty plastic container if you're like our girl Johanna. So hopefully that's what you all get for Valentine's Day.